This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers is your one-stop shop to level up your skills. These episodes are a great way to get a preview of the fascinating subjects and knowledge from my guests, but if you want to build a deeper understanding and practical skills that will serve you on your regenerative journey, then you should check out their titles like Coppice Agroforestry, The Book of Nature Connection, Practical No-Till Farming, Wild Plant Culture, and so many more. They've got audio, digital, and hard copy books so that you can choose your favorite format. Find it all now at NewSociety.com. Hey everybody and welcome back. So if you've been following the episode so far this season, then you know that I've got a lot of projects and travels going on right now. Since the episode that I recorded in Nicaragua, I've also been on a project on the island of Madeira. And just two days ago, I got back from a nine-day trip to Portugal. Now, though I haven't been able to record everything like a diary the way that I would have liked to, today I did get a chance to sit down with Nick Steiner, who was with me every step of the way during our tour around three of our favorite farms around the Alentejo region. So to keep things short, we start by talking about the activities that we were involved with in the farm visits, along with the Climate Farmers team. And then we go into more detail about the enterprises as well as the management techniques and experiments that each of them are implementing and having stunning results with. And then, of course, it wouldn't be an episode with me and Nick if we didn't geek out about water management. We also talk about the opportunities that we observed from the different farms on how to hold and store water better and what implications this could have for the fertility and the production on each of their landscapes. Now I know that this will be only one of the many visits that we make to Portugal over time, especially given the requests and the interest that we've been getting from other farmers in the region to help with water scarcity issues. So in future episodes, Nick and I will start to move from the larger overview talks like today and go more into detail on the causes and the effects of the broken water cycles, the range of techniques available for specific contexts, and actual tutorials and classes where you can transform your land into a water retention landscape. But for now, let's just jump into the chat with me and Nick. Hey, Nick, good to see you again, man. Uh, I say that as if I didn't just see you two days ago in person. <laughs> just like yeah, on this show before you and I are always talking so it's kind of weird to record a conversation but how how is it to be back at your place in Tenerife yeah I mean it, it feels like a lifetime after spending almost two weeks day and night uh day and night together it's great to be back incredible to see what has happened I'm really happy to see that by by designing systems to be low maintenance no one had to do anything here. I'm coming back. Everything is growing and still being watered. So uh, that was encouraging. And I'm very happy to be back in the, in the sun with my plants and cat and friends. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, look, so let's take a couple of steps back for those who have not heard all the journeys that we've been on since the last episode in which we focused on water. Uh, well, we just got together in Portugal. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what we did there, first of all? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been it's been a very full and and also impactful time. So the main reason we went was with the climate farmers team. Uh, we had an on-site meeting since we always work remotely. We want to make sure that we get together in person. And we had the great pleasure of spending a week there working, working with the others of the team. And then also using that time to visit a few of the farmers who have been with us um, since the very beginning, which is always such a pleasure um, I mean, you've been there before, but for me, it was the first time actually seeing their incredible work on the ground. So that was great. And during those visits, it kind of became clear that we could stay a bit longer and support directly on the land. Um, so that developed out of that. So we could already support a bit with water related um, concerns. And also during one of the weekends, we had the big pleasure of co-hosting a workshop on one of the farms. Um, and that was just, yeah, such a pleasure to see other farmers from the community and to work on the ground together with all these uh, great people. Yeah, like you said, we did a lot in that time. The the team offsite with just getting to reconnect with the people that we we work remotely with all the time was great. And it really served to map out a clear vision for the next couple of quarters of work within climate farmers and for me with the community, especially. 
and then making the time to bring some of our team out who is not as connected with farming, but you know, this is a community that directly works to support farmers and showing them what it is that people in our community are doing on the ground, making it connect in a more visceral way and understand their process as well as their, their challenges is really good for the whole company to connect with. Um, yeah, like you said, I've been to two of the farms that we visited before on a, a previous trip out to Portugal. They were some of our initial members of the Pioneer program uh, that we started with two years ago. And they have since become some of the leaders of regenerative management of farms in Portugal. They've done a fantastic job about getting out the message of the practices that have been working for them, as well as talking about the challenges that farmers in Portugal in general face and the roadblocks to implementing these things, as well as the support needed in order to make it more effective and attractive for farmers to adopt these management styles. And I'll mention them by name in a second as we go through the visits that we talked about. So the first farm that we visited was Joao Valente, a really good friend of both of ours. Uh, like I said, part of that pioneer program initially. He's got, what is it, 700 or 1,000 hectares of Montado, which is the Portuguese version of the Deesa system in Spain, their, their analog systems, which is essentially the Iberian savanna an incredible ecosystem of grasslands and overstories of cork and home oak primarily, but also home to some of the biggest diversity in the Mediterranean all along Europe. And he is in a more of a, a dry land context. I mean, it's all kind of dry land in central and southern Portugal, but particularly where he is, I think they get uh, usually under 400 millimeters of rain a year and oftentimes quite a bit less than that too. And this is bringing on all kinds of challenges for the whole region, say nothing of his farm, but a lot of the industry that has moved in around him is massive monoculture almond plantations, funded oftentimes from overseas multinational corporations that buy up large tracts of land and lay down uh, irrigation systems and berms that are way off contour, essentially draining the landscape anytime it rains and then pumping water up either from underground aquifers or from lakes nearby in order to keep these trees alive. And it's such a stark contrast in seeing the landscape as you get out to his place, just completely tilled up, bare of any other vegetation except for these almond trees and the, you know, kilometers of drip line that keeps them alive and then you move into his and there's still quite an intact montado system that he is working to preserve with grazing he's got a few pivot systems for organic grain and legume production and is working to integrate all of these enterprises for the health of the system what were some of the main things that you took away from that visit that you learned when you when you saw him? i think for me the main thing was just um a large admiration for, for the giant task they're taking on. Um, just managing 700 hectares of of anything is incredible. <laughs> and specifically in that case, with the mix of different animals, different different production systems, all this, and then making it work in a place where, where water is most definitely not the most abundant resource. Um, there's just huge admiration for that, um, of juggling, all these different tasks and um it was really interesting to see specifically the the fence lines to the neighboring product um properties as you've mentioned the almonds uh, it's just scary to see the amount of of degradation that is that uh, that is happening there the amount of erosion that that just washes off um and then parts of the of the farm visited it's just beautiful green um green and lush with with sheep grazing them. Um, it was really beautiful the first day we arrived. The weather was fantastic. Um, there were a few lambs who, who were just born as we were there and, and we were there to move them to the next paddock. And, and that's incredible. So it's, it's really great to see um, what is possible. And then on the same side, it's great to see the, the regeneration, but also how much potential there still is um, to get things even better. So... Many of the landscapes just over over many years of, of how they were managed, 
and how maybe water management was was not the main priority you can you can just see it in the landscape so there were some erosion gullies of water that that washed away that just over the over the decades maybe even over the centuries have cut deep channels uh, into the land and there were a lot of points where you could see um that you could actually just intervene in small places to very likely save a lot of water uh, that is used for irrigation. Um, yeah, so overall, I would say it was it was a great mix of of amazement of what is already working, and at the same time seeing a lot of potential to make the make the farm function even better. How how was it for you? How was your experience? Yeah, well, so having seen it once before, it was a very quick pass through that I did with our co-founder, Philip, the last time I was there. And we were seeing how his new experiments with cover crops were coming up and working in his pivot irrigation areas, as well as where he was rotating the cattle um, and looking at the progress. So one thing that I can say of management of water that he has done extremely well in the last couple of decades is recovering the health of the riparian zone of one of the drainage canals that were at the bottom of his property. And it's like just right before the water starts to leave and go over to the neighbors and then connect to the river that's nearby. It had been a massive erosion gully that they spent a lot of resources and time on to replant with willows, especially, as well as some canya grass and poplar, I believe. I think mostly black poplar. And, you know, they lost a ton in the process. You get very dry years. You get time when water doesn't flow through that area. But in the last 20 years, they've actually started to hold the sediment that comes down to that point to the point where it is now where it's almost recovered back to ground level uh, where it had been maybe two meters dug into the earth before. It's a fantastic example of what can be done with these slow, gradual uh, biological amendments to erosion channels and recovering the recovering the, the floodplain of what this was so that the water can spread out and deposit its sediment rather than just push everything out the bottom and take the, the nutrients and the, the organic matter from above the, the, the system all the way through. So that was really brilliant to see. Um, let's see. So we're coming off of one of the worst drought years in recent history, as well as the hottest year ever on record in Europe. So to give a little context for people as to like what we're seeing, this is now one of the most lush conditions that you would see an ecosystem like this in after a decent amount of rain in autumn and winter. They actually had some massive rains earlier, I want to say in January, maybe even December as well, that caused a lot of flooding. So they had some huge rain events. Um, and so things have started to recover. It looks better than it would likely look later in the summer after things have been dry. And so it's good to keep that in mind whenever you're walking a place, you're only ever seeing a snapshot of it. Uh, and I can, you know, despite all the incredible work that has been done, you can also see where the cracks are starting to show that are going to cause problems later in, in the, the season because of where there are some weaknesses, where are there, there are some disconnects. Um, but, you know, that's part of why he invited us back. And we'll loop back around after we talk about the other farms that we visited, because we actually came back there at the end of our trip to do a particular consultation, especially you with the rainwater harvesting system from their barns. Um, but let's get back to that later. So after leaving Joao's, we went to the second farmer, Sergio Nicolau, and he is growing grapes on 10 hectares in, uh, I forget the name of the town. <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, but it's about 40 minutes north of Lisbon, not far from the coast. And this vineyard has been in his family for quite a while. He shifted management of it two or three years ago, starting with a few simple, uh, I guess, experiments. And he's been in the wine growing industry and the wine making industry for his whole life. He grew up in this town. He has an incredible story, which I'm sure I'm going to butcher. In fact, I've got to get him on, on the show sometime to tell it himself. But over time, he started to see how not only the productivity of the vineyards was starting to hurt, but the input cost of keeping them alive was really starting to eke away at the profit margins of the people who own them. 
And he told some compelling stories about how he remembers going out into the fields when he was younger and being able to just easily dig in there and see a totally different color and structure of the soil. So as now, I mean, it's all light, uh, mostly slightly alkaline lime soils, as far as I understand, and basically like cement when it's dry. And in just the two, three years that he's been starting some new practices, there have been some real turnaround in the amount of organic matter that's in there. The cover crops that he's trialing, the learning journey that he's been on has really been paying off. Tell me about what you observed and learned from that visit yourself. Yeah, for me the the visit was was a very very special one. I've been I've been looking forward to this visit for for a very long time. Uh, we've been in close contact with him ever since since we first uh, got into personal contact at the first Climate Farmers Conference. And the main thing for me was the the drive there because you're driving through the countryside and all you can see left and right is just bare soil. Um, you have people people producing but also plowing between their grapes and it just looks like a very depleted and bleeding landscape which unfortunately is the norm in in wine production uh, as far as i i understand it and, and that's really alarming and then you you get onto his land and suddenly it's lush green um completely covered in a in a multi-species cover crop mix so he's growing lots of different species he also has um, animals integrated into the system. So there's a lot of chickens running around. Uh, we also visited one part of the farm where he's collaborating uh, with the local with the local shepherd. So uh, we had a lot of sheep and also some goats coming through, uh, which are grazing and then fertilizing the land. So it's a complete difference. It's night and day to the neighbors and. Um, it's beautiful to see like what is possible in such a short time frame. It's only been a couple of years and the land just looks so healthy compared to everything around. Um, and yeah, when we, when we did a little tour, you could really see how much is eroding off the neighbor's land and how on his land water can infiltrate uh, even now after these heavy rains. And I mean, that's the main thing we are seeing in, in Portugal and Spain. Very likely it's only going to get more extreme. We have a very long and hot drought followed by very intense rainfall events. And if you're not able to buffer these events, um, it will it will just cause erosion and the water will leave the property. But if your soil looks like that, you can infiltrate much more and you can really see that on his land. So he, he's done an incredible job. Um, and we also had the great pleasure at the end of the day to taste uh, the amazing work he has been doing. And wow, um, hands down the best wine I ever tried. So if you ever get the chance of getting your hands on, on his wine, I can I can highly recommend it to everyone. And it was such a such a great experience to see what you can do with land, how you can transform it. Um, and then the little cherry on top, we had a surprise visit by Ademir Caligari, who is um, yeah, I mean anyone who is in agriculture will will know his name specifically in in relation to cover crops. So he is the absolute master of cover crops um, for the for the past decades. And yeah, it was really nice to see the two of them interact on the land and discuss different different crops, uh, different cover crop mixes, and and what could be done to um, regenerate the land even faster. So yeah, it was was an absolute pleasure, and I'm already really looking forward to to coming back. And how was it for you? Like, were there were there some points that really um, were big highlights for you during the visit now? The main thing I took away from Sergio's place, which I hadn't visited before, last time I was there visiting uh, Francisco's place, he had COVID and I just missed seeing his, his farm. The main thing that I, I was left impressed with is just how much experimentation he's doing. So he's got multiple compost bins. He's trying beam compost or the, the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. He's in his second year of trialing these. He's worked with some other farmers in his area who are machinists to uh, modify some of the old machinery that he's had in order to get some of the function and try some of the tests of what he'd been learning from uh, other regenerative viticulturalists from around the world, as well as you know trials for decompaction with subsoiling while also being able to drip some uh, compost extracts and some raw milk down there to get the biology activated. 
Um, he's constantly looking for anything new that he can trial and observe to see what is going to accelerate his progress fastest. And I, to me, that's a real mark of someone who is on a regenerative trajectory with whatever project they're doing is just shortcutting this feedback loop and constantly learning and constantly trying new things and bringing in information from outside while also testing it on the ground before you expand it and, and go really large. And much like the other two that we're talking about as well, he is a very important member of his community. He's been, like I said, working in the wine industry locally for a long time. He's very well respected as, an, uh, as a knowledgeable person uh, within his community and is helping to slowly but surely demonstrate the benefits of working with the living biology and the community, you know, the, the diversity of life forms in order to move forward and and gain success with whatever type of uh, farming enterprise that you're working with. One of the big things is he's trying to renovate uh, an old wine bodega. I don't know what they call it in Portugal, um, but it was built in the 1930s and he has beautiful stories and memories of his father and his grandfather being in there and it being a center for the neighborhood around where people would come together, share ideas, stories, celebrate together enjoy the wine that was made around them and he wants to revive that as as what it used to be i think it's just a beautiful project and it's one of the things that i i most love to see when people kind of you know switch their thinking around how they manage their farms it stops being a competitive uh, endeavor right where you're trying to do something better or produce more than your neighbors rather it's an opportunity to share any surplus that there might be and you know, bring people with you in this version of success that you create for yourself. That was something I was really, really impressed in, in seeing. And so I guess from there, you know, we had a couple more days of, no, no, actually, no, sorry. From Sergio's, we actually went directly to Francisco's. I'm getting all of this mixed up. I've only been back home for one day. But yeah, so you and I, uh, since a couple of weeks ago, have been planning the first Climate Farmers Community uh, Gathering or event at Francisco's farm. Now we picked his place because he's been hosting farm events for quite a long time. Just like Sergio and, and Joao, he has become a center in his community of demonstrating different management practices, has invited people from universities and research centers and farming organizations to come and see and inspect what he's been learning and what has been working for him. And so, yeah, so we talked to him about bringing together 20 of the other farmers from our network and quite a few of the, the climate farmers team, again, to check out what our own farmers in our network are doing and learn from their experiences. And he did a wonderful job of first giving a farm tour in the beginning and condensing some of the incredible complexity of his own Montado system. Like I mentioned before, it's the Iberian savanna. He's in a slightly wetter climate, maybe about 650 millimeters a year of rainfall. And man, you can really see the difference too in what that small amount of extra rainfall can do for an ecosystem like that. There are some areas of really dense forest of, like I said, pork and home oak. And uh, he's got an olive orchard in there. He's got four different types of animals. The ones that they're best known for is the, uh, the Alentejo pig, the black pig, which has some very old genetics and is very well adapted, not only to the heat stress that they can get in the summer, but also the forage that they've created in the landscape so that there's less input in feed necessary to get them to, to wait. But you know, there's compromises in that too. They're smaller animals. They can't fatten them up nearly as much as higher production breeds. And it's something that he talked about the decision-making process for making that compromise, as well as the rotational kind of breeding paddocks that they've developed uh, back from, from his father's day that have made them innovators in the, the care of this specific breed of the Alentejo pig. Uh, man, I mean, we could fill the rest of the, the podcast just on what we saw and what we've learned. This, again, was my second visit out there. It was really cool to see because the, the first one we went to do a tree planting event with Life Terra, and we planted about a thousand trees with 50 volunteers in that time. And so seeing what worked and what didn't, because again, it was a really, really hot and dry summer previously, and there were losses in certain 
varieties and certain species didn't really make it, but we got quite a bit of success rate on some of the hardier and more, more rustic varieties, and we'll see how those continue to survive over time. Um, yeah, so again, tell me what your impression was, what you learned, this was your first time there, and then we can talk about the event itself. Yeah, for me, it's also been a, been a huge, huge pleasure going there because, I mean, Francisco is a, is a good, good friend. And whenever you hear about regenerative agriculture in Portugal, uh, his name comes up because the, the farm is just such a, such a beacon of, of hope, so to say, in terms of regeneration for the, for the Iberian uh, Peninsula. And it's been, it's been a huge pleasure to see the different experiments and the different projects, how they've, how they've handled their animals. Um, what things they're trying, uh, what things they're working on, and also the the kind of diversity that's happening there. And then again, like hundreds of hectares, a gigantic farm, and they're man managing it with the with the tiniest of teams. Um, I mean, it, it was just incredible to see what is possible there. I think on on the side of what what kind of stuck in my head was on the way there it was a bit of a struggle um because we we just had a normal car and the road the access road is at the bottom of the property where there's a small creek next to it and the road was just completely destroyed the the dirt road so it was um quite a challenge to drive there and um then later we found out that this was because after the heavy drought there were very intense rainfalls and that lead uh, or that led to, to quite a bit of flooding and the tiny creek just turned into a flooding river that washed away the, the road and caused quite a bit of destruction and it was it was another one of these kind of points that that just stuck in the mind to to figure out hey how can you turn water into something that is very useful for your farm rather than something that only comes occasionally and then has a destructive force. Um, so obviously kind of being a water guy, uh, that was the, the first thing I noticed when, when going onto the farm. Um, and then in general, I, I just really love all the things he's doing there, the different trials uh, of tree planting, combining that with, with pasture management. Um, and also in terms of, of water, what he's, what he's trying, what he wants to do. Um, so it's really beautiful to see the, the kind of willingness to change things also the difficulty especially when when you're trying to change things from how they always were and many people tell you that that the work you're doing is either you get a lot of um yeah a lot of resistance from any sides but then still sticking to it and believing um in in regenerating and in having a farm that's viable for future generations and not just going to turn into a desert um, that's absolutely beautiful. So his perseverance in this and and his work to really highlight what he's doing, even if it's not leading directly to financial returns for the farm. I mean, that's that's absolutely absolutely incredible. So I was really amazed to to see it. Um, yeah, and how how was it for you? Like, I mean, you've you've been before, so maybe some things changed. What were the the differences you saw? So his was the farm that I had seen most thoroughly. Like I just passed briefly through Joao's in the previous visit. Um, but I went all over his place the last time I was there. Him and Dimitri Tsitsos, uh, the the host of the Regenerative Agroforestry podcast, he and I collaborated on the design and the hosting of this tree planting event. And in the days leading up to it, I went around with him and uh, and, and his other farmhand to move the pigs to different paddocks, the cattle as well. They were in calving season. So he actually uh, assisted in one of the births. That was quite wild. And yeah, I got really involved in the days leading up to the event last time. So I did get to see it quite well. Uh, this time though, I went with much more of a keen observation about how water is working on the land. And like you said, seeing the destruction of the road, it's like, well, wow, it's quite a welcome to the place. It really, brings it home as to how important this is. And I mean, really, I, I was focused on the event that we were hosting there. And it's something that we're going to be doing a lot more on other farms in different regions of Europe. So I, I mean, I'll be announcing those in, in weeks and months to come as we get those dates. But 
uh, it just it really sunk in for me how while you can be getting so many things right, if you get something as essential as water uh, basically acting as a destructive or a scarcity force on your place, it can really cut the legs out of other efforts, no matter how well they may be executed, right? And, you know, this is also something that we were starting to see on Joao's farm. And it's it's why they asked us to take a look from our perspective while we were there, too. And so let's let's shift gears now and talk specifically about what we observed beyond what we've already talked about now, but like some real specifics, as well as what we're going to be assisting with moving forward. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the biggest things that that stuck out were these in in parts massive erosion gullies so for those not so familiar with it basically unless your land is perfectly flat there's generally some some kind of place where where water tends to accumulate and then turn into a stream uh, when there's a lot of water and if the water can't infiltrate and if it accumulates and you have a large mass of water that's going at a, at a fast pace that can really cut into the landscape um, and it really leads to something like the landscape bleeding so to say I think that's the that's the best way to imagine it because especially when you don't have a lot of water like once it's there it usually comes in very heavy rain events and if all of that water then just cuts into the landscape takes your fertile soil with it and bleeds off the landscape uh, it's not going to do a lot of benefit and um, yeah, it's not going to be very, very beneficial for your land. And we saw quite a few of these, like just over the years, they've cut deeper and deeper. And it's a bit of the, the issue. They, they tend to be like the plugs in a bathtub, like someone just pulls them out and then all the water that could accumulate, it just drains faster and faster every year as they get deeper. Um, and that was really scary to see because it's also one of the, so to say, easiest places where you can start, like basically looking at your landscape and see, okay, where's water leaving? Where's water draining off the farm when it rains? And how can you plug these? And this is kind of the, the steps that, that make so much sense. Like first, okay, put the plug back in so no water leaves the landscape and then build ways of recirculating that water through the landscape to really bring out the, the regenerative force. And yeah, we saw a lot of these. So a lot of points where with a little bit of work, you could get massive benefit in, in stopping water from, from eroding away. Um, and then the other thing we saw, not just on one farm, but it's, it's a general pattern. It's there are dams and there are earthworks to store some of the water and to keep it on the land. But quite often, not that much care has been put into, let's say, the longevity of these so maybe when they were first put in it was like that but what we saw often was that um one of the most dangerous things that the spillways so basically what happens when there's so much water like where can it go so that's called the spillway so kind of the overflow um of those features they weren't really designed in a way that can handle large rain events and so we could see a lot of cuts um in them also the size of some of them was was quite small um, and so you could see that they have eroded away. And especially if the spillway is part of the dam wall or very close to it, that can be very, very dangerous with, with heavy rain events. And so we saw, we saw some examples of, of this where, where this could be um, improved. And then also just over time, because they've been put in such a long time ago, you could see some, some plants and also some trees growing on the dam wall. Uh, which can also turn into quite a problem because the roots, um, they can act like tiny jackhammers, just slowly degrading the dam walls um, and then causing leaks. And at some point, even when the trees die or in a wind, um, if the trees fall, they can cut a whole hole um, into the dam wall, which could then cause uh, yeah, catastrophic damage. So there were a lot of these points where you could see the the general thinking was there, the idea was also great, but then in the final execution or um, in the upkeep, there's a great potential to, to improve them a little bit um, by reshaping, you could store much more water. Um, you could also very likely increase the longevity of these um, and you could really stop a lot of the, let's say bleeding 
of the land. Um, and that was also an issue on the on the productive land, so more on the arable land, um, the, because you don't have that much slope, but, but it's still enough for heavy rain events to take a lot of the seeds and everything away. And if you're losing, if you're losing seeds, if you're losing um, if you're losing topsoil in heavy rain events, uh, that's quite an issue. So there were many, many points where we could see like, ah, there's a lot of room for intervention. There's a lot of places where you can, um, where we can have a great benefit by just reshaping a little bit and and kind of changing the changing the mindset. Um, yeah. So this was a uh, yeah quite quite a quite a long explanation, but yeah, you you know me. You like when I talk about water, it, uh, it can oh, be oh yeah, and there's can be a bit. I don't longer. know how we're gonna keep within our time today. This is it's never gonna happen with water. Um, yeah. So to build on that too, I mean. It just it reinforced a couple of things for me, like everything you said about the maintenance of these places is often what's forgotten over time, especially when they were made by generations who have not communicated their original intent or how they did things to the later generations. Right. Um, keeping animals off of water features was really reinforced to me. There were a number of dams and uh, waterways that went right through animal paddocks where they hadn't been moved in a while. And when the rains came down, I mean, they just became mud slurries and all sorts of erosion was, you know, had it been something that it was kind of caught in time or was adapted in time, could have easily been avoided. But now is at a point where, I mean, there's probably going to need to be some, some pretty serious interventions to get things to work optimally again. Uh, very quickly, especially on harsh and or hard hard soils and parched landscapes, uh, just a little bit of concentrated animal impact can really mess up <laughs> a steep slope. You know, it just becomes a slip and slide. And with that point load up of a hoof, uh, it's just making pock marks in the landscape. And it was yeah, it really reinforced that to me. We've got we've got some pictures and stuff to to kind of use as example, but. Um, you know, the other one being that start working at the top of the watershed, always look for options as high up as you can before water concentrates too much. And before it becomes an erosive force, if you can put catchment bodies, if you can put erosion protection, if you can reinforce riparian zones higher up on the landscape, you're always going to avoid the more expensive and uh, difficult interventions that would then be necessary further down. Um, so especially while you're starting out with experiments and are not quite sure exactly how things are going to respond, try them at the top. Try them at the early head cuts, uh, which is something that we made some videos about as well. Identifying those points where water is starting to collect an erosive force, gain kinetic energy and take material with it and start working there. And you know, you can try things oftentimes without any significant machinery at that point and watch it over a season to see how it responds to that type of intervention, whether it's, uh, you know, spreading it out, out onto the ridges, whether it's creating a catchment basin or whether it's just putting in some kind of texture in the form of a beaver dam analog or, you know, something to stop it from from doing further damage and scouring out the landscape. There were so many examples of that. Um, and I've also seen some experiments done, especially on Francisco's farm. He's been starting to take the prunings from some of his trees and a few of the oak trees that die just because they get old and using that material and putting it into some of the drainage gullies on his place. Uh, I mean, it's an early stage experiment, but it's already starting to show some results. So, yeah, those were some of the things that really landed for me. Now, you were also asked to take a look at a rainwater harvesting system, and you're working on a design right now. This potentially would be the largest one I've ever taken a look at because there is so much roof space for all of the barns and outbuildings on this farm. What do you see as the potential there, and what's the objective of this project? Yeah, the... The objective is is twofold mainly. So on the one side, uh, really great work with um, with different microbes, so working with them, and also with with different um, composts, uh, composting systems. And they also want to 
go deeper into compost extracts, uh, potentially also brewing some compost tea. So, so all these experiments and then using that as, as fertigation. So basically where you're irrigating and fertilizing at the same, at the same time and through the big pivot irrigation. So that's these kind of circular giant um, irrigation arms that, um, that can irrigate what was the largest? I think 40, 40 hectares. One of one of those. 44, yeah. 44. Yeah. It's like a giant area that can be irrigated if you have enough water. Like that's the main thing. But also it can be used um to then also get some beneficial microbes and all these kind of things through the system. So you can you can do two things at once, uh, which is always great. Um that's the one thing. And on the other side, also having more water available for animals. So just to for them for them to drink, and so those are the the kind of the two goals, and um, the, the great thing that that um, is possible there because there is so much infrastructure already there. Um, so the roof surfaces, um, I didn't do a full analysis yet um, on um, on Google Maps or on Google Earth to see how much catchment there is, but potentially there's somewhere between two and three thousand square meters um of catchment area and with that you you only need a tiny rainfall to get quite a significant um amount of of water so basically every one millimeter of rain is one liter per square meter so yeah if you get one millimeter of rain which is hardly anything on thousand uh, square meters of roof that's already thousand liters so it's it can give you an idea of how fast you can accumulate a lot of water. And the best thing is it's free. Um, so the, the challenge there is a bit because it's so many different buildings with different elevation levels. So we have to see how we design it so that we can optimally use and store that water to then most, but also for the, um, for the composting operation. So that's going to be um, a very fun thing because you have to take a lot of things into account. So on the one side, where do you want to store it? Um, how do you get the water there? Like, is there concrete in between? So how can you lay the pipe? So that's it's going to be quite interesting in the design process. Um, and on the other side, you need to be a bit careful also with that much roof surface that can accumulate quite a bit of water in heavy rain events. So you also need to be a bit careful with the sizing of the pipe so that everything is safe. And um, yeah, and you can, you can do it optimally. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing it. It's such a simple and cost-effective way of getting significant amounts of of clean water that might even be clean enough for for human consumption if you build the system right um and it's a it's a great way of getting started on a farm i think it's one of the first things people can do and from there very likely we will expand also more into the landscape into the landscape hydrology um so there's also a lot of a lot of potential points where we want to where we want to act where we want to interact with the land and really improve water catchment uh, and prevent any water from causing problems, but rather, yeah, being a being a great tool for for regeneration. Um, yeah, but it's it's such a big project, and we can talk about it for for a long time. Um, it's a bit of the it's a bit of the question like should we already go more into details of this, or do we capture it in another episode? Um, yeah, yeah how, how, we'll go how deeper would you into like this on another one, especially when we have some diagrams and some images that we can share with people, because it's one thing to talk about it on the air, and it's another to be able to demonstrate it through pictures and videos. So we'll work to get that stuff first. But I guess we can wrap up just by saying we spent a ton of time, not only on all of these farms, but in these long drives in between these big distances around Alentejo, basically talking about how many options there are for any given landscape to intervene on the, the water cycle and, and how well it is captured in the landscape. You know, obviously there's these big, sexy uh, pond and dam installation projects with terraces and swales and all of these things that get attention, but that's often outside of the budget for a lot of people. And we were just going through the range of what's possible from you know, little rain gardens at the bottom of a downspout on a roof to rainwater holding capacity, both in tanks. And I know you've been experimenting with these new expandable bladders that they give. Uh, and then, you know, how to improve the retention rate of soil and all of this. And it's just becoming so relevant now. I mean, since I got back, I've been receiving all of these alerts from the Catalan uh, Water Association here where I live 
that they've already started to implement water restriction policies for many of the counties around Barcelona, partly because of the ongoing drought going on from last year, but also because of water management practices that are just unsustainable. And so you and I are gonna be rolling out quite a few new resources in a pretty short amount of time between the videos and the tutorials that we're putting out on our social media channels, the blog posts that we'll be writing for regenerative skills and for your own brand, and increasingly giving workshops at different scales at different types of farms to show that there are unique and appropriate interventions and designs that can work for any type of farm, whether you know big earthworks are appropriate for you or whether something smaller and more manageable can fit within your budget, like this is worth investing in. How would you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you put it you put it in a great way. Like the main thing that that needs to happen is more of the awareness and the kind of educational and capacity building side for landowners. Like that's the main thing because I'm I'm always a bit worried that many projects uh, you might just have someone come in put in something, then leave again. And then the landowners are stuck with it. And um, if the functioning is not fully communicated or in some cases not fully understood, it can lead to quite a few problems later on. And that's why it's so important to focus more on on the educational and coaching side to see like, hey, we, we just bring the first little bit of inspiration, but then the landowners can can implement themselves and they can get an idea of like, ah, okay, now I've done this once, I've seen it once. Um, I can also do this. So, of course, this depends on on what it is. Like, no one should just go in and put a massive dam uh, without actually knowing what what they're doing. But many of the smaller features can be done. And I think for me, one of the greatest things there was the the workshop we organized um, on Francisco's farm, where we wanted to see, okay, well, what's the best way of of bringing some of this uh, way of how water works across. So what we did is a bit of a challenge with the group. So we all, um, we had these three groups design their own kind of farms uh, on a tiny scale. So they had to tell us what, what kind of farm it is. And then they got the task of making sure that uh, they harvest a heavy rain event that we would simulate and how they could distribute it over the farm. Um, and it was a really great way for them to kind of experiment with, okay, how do you get water from one side to the other? Like, how do you stop water? How do you infiltrate it? Um, how do overflows and, and spillways work? And it was a really, really great exercise. And you could really see how, how many of them got got the thinking process going. Um, and I think this is the approach that makes sense. You know, it needs to be a mix of bringing some knowledge across. But on the other side, you know, we, we will also be on the ground implementing some things ourselves, also working with others. Um, and that's what is needed. Like the the extremes, the weather extremes are only going to get worse very likely we're just going to see more drought followed by more heavy rain events and potentially flooding. But very likely every farm is going to get the amount of rain they would need for all their needs. Like it's, it's just happening. Over the year, you will definitely get enough water, but it's very likely that it will come in very condensed events. And then the main challenge is like, can you infiltrate it? Can you store it in your land? And can you drought proof it? until the next heavy rain event comes and um, i'm absolutely thrilled to be on this journey it was it was incredible to see how we could already help these amazing farmers in their work and and i'm really looking forward to supporting them even even further and building resilience um, and in building also profitable operations because the cost of water for irrigation is definitely not going down and yeah if if you have the options between investing now to to drought proof your farm and to build resilience versus potentially going out of business when the water runs out and when the rains become too sparse i think it's a yeah it's it's the perfect time to really get into this and to get serious about the kind of work yeah absolutely and okay so look let's leave it there uh there's a lot of links and resources that we should put on the show notes here so i'll share the websites and the instagram accounts of all of the farms that we mentioned as well as they have a website for a consulting organization called Orgo that they formed. The three of them, as well as another one of their colleagues who is based in Germany, but is also a farmer in Portugal who, who owns olive fields. And they are working with 
producers all over the country as well as internationally now to help uh well explain and to establish some of their own management methods and from the success that they've had on their own farms for others so i'll link all of that they're a credible organization and, and doing really good coaching work for other farmers i will make sure to put all of your stuff on there nick as well as your your new website's almost finished i think how long until that's ready uh i think it should be should be hopefully not more than a week uh, nice. I'll, I'll do my best to get it done uh, as quickly as possible nice well, i'll post that when we got it and we don't yet have the dates for the workshops. They're in the works right now. I know the next farmers gathering is going to be in Brandenburg in Germany, coming up probably in the middle of May. As soon as I have the exact date, I will post that as well. And we're also looking at ones in Italy and in Spain at other points in the year, probably in the fall. So those are coming up soon. Any last things there, Nick, before we sign off? Um, no, I'm just incredibly grateful to finally meet these amazing farmers on their land. And I'm really looking forward to going back soon to start implementing more of the work and to support even more, more landowners with, with building drought resilient and long-term profitable farms. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the last thing would be if you are looking for some assistance in these areas, or possibly even interested in hosting a workshop at your place, you can get in touch with us at regenerativeskills.com through the contact page uh, or directly through our, our social media accounts. All right, I think that's a good place to leave it for this time. We really held it in this time. We, we didn't go too nerdy with the, with the water stuff. We'll have another episode on that again soon. Uh, and another thing is that I know a lot of you have been submitting questions that you wanted us to answer on the air. We didn't get around to that this time, but I am saving all of those questions. I promise we'll do a proper Q&A session on, on the next episode. All right. Cool. Great to catch up with you again, Nick. I'll see you next time. It's been a big pleasure. Have a great day. All right, there you have it. It's always a joy to catch up with Nick Steiner. As I mentioned, all of the links and resources will be on the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.